Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's show, there's a lot more work to do. That's the primary conclusion to a recent State of the Air report from the American Lung Association. It analyzes and ranks states and counties based on clean air assessments, which also include equity and advocacy efforts. What Georgia counties should, are at risk? Well, here in the metro Atlanta area, Fulton, we know some, but the grade was an F. More on that in just a moment. Plus, we revisit our conversation with Gwinnett County School Superintendent Dr. Calvin Watts on his first year leading the district and the ongoing challenges associated with the pandemic. By managing change, uh, allowed us to answer several questions. Uh, what's most important? It's teaching and learning. But it's also even more important for our students and our staff members to be safe while doing it. And we had mitigation strategies like other 13,000 school districts that we operated within. Um, we were able to manage fairly successfully in this this year one. All those conversations coming up. But first this, it was a Supreme Court term that congressional Democrats are calling disastrous. Some are standing outside the U.S. Capitol today and again calling for SCOTUS to be expanded. That's the Supreme Court of the United States, for those that didn't know. As Lily Oppenheimer reports, that includes a Georgia congressman. Hank Johnson is set to join other progressive Democrats in renewing calls to pass the Judiciary Act. The bill, which he sponsored, would expand the court from 9 to 13 justices. They say it's needed to restore balance lost after Donald Trump appointed three conservatives in just one four-year term. The result is a series of recent rulings that strip the right to an abortion, weaken environmental protections, and limit gun control. Johnson joins more than a dozen other speakers. That's scheduled for two this afternoon. Lily Oppenheimer, WABE News. Speaking of the courts, a federal judge today will consider if Georgia's ban on handing out snacks and water to people waiting in line to vote is a violation. A coalition of civil and voting rights groups want the court to temporarily halt the measure through the midterm elections. WABE politics reporter Sam Greenglass has all the details. Ever since Republican lawmakers overhauled Georgia voting law last year, opponents have highlighted the food and water ban as a prime example of how they say the law hurts voters. Now they're asking for a preliminary injunction to block the rule, at least for now. The request is part of a sweeping lawsuit over Georgia's voting law, SB202. The plaintiffs are challenging the law's new restrictions on mobile voting units, drop boxes, and provisional ballots, as well as new ID requirements for casting an absentee ballot, among other measures. Hearings in that broader lawsuit will proceed after the court rules on whether to pause the food and water ban. Sam Greenglass, WABE News. Another lawsuit involving another Georgia law has taken a step forward in the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. It involves a state suspended six-week abortion ban. This after attorneys on both sides submitted additional legal briefs to the court last Friday. Just made our reports judges requested them after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. Georgia's 2019 law would ban most abortions after around six weeks of pregnancy, a cutoff medical associations, including the American Medical Association, say would endanger patients' health. It would also grant so-called personhood rights to an embryo once cardiac activity is detected. In their briefs, opponents represented by the American Civil Liberties Union argue the law's personhood provisions are vague and would be unconstitutional for patients and providers. And attorneys for the state argue the court should allow this six-week law to take effect. They contend with Roe v. Wade gone, the plaintiffs no longer have a case. It's unclear when the 11th Circuit will issue a decision in the lawsuit. Meanwhile, Georgia abortion rights advocates say they'll keep fighting for access to the procedure. Jess Mador, 
WABE News. The city of Jonesboro and Clayton County Public Schools are partnering to preserve an all-black school from the 1930s. Once known as the Jonesboro Colored School on Smith Street, it was part of the Rosenwald Schools Network. Now, that became obsolete after the 1954 Supreme Court Brown v. the Board of Education ruling ending legal segregation in America's public schools. Kemet Thompson with Clayton County Schools says the $1.5 million restoration project is essential to keeping the city's past alive. I think it began to go down the road of being a disappearing history in some of these communities, and we did not want that to happen here. Thompson expects the project to be to be completed next year as a facility open to the community, which will also include a museum detailing the school's history. Finally, Major League Baseball's midseason break is here, and that means All-Star Week is underway. Tonight is the ever-popular home run derby taking place at Dodger Stadium out in L.A. The All-Star game is tomorrow night. Six Atlanta Braves are named to the National League's team, although pitcher Max Fried will not play. Instead, he'll rest during the break. And right now, the Braves are in second place in the National League East behind those old pesky New York Mets. Just kidding. We all like the Mets, right? Maybe not. Back in a moment, you're listening to Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. How's the air up there above where we live? Well, overall in our nation, there's a lot that needs to be done. There were more days with very unhealthy or hazardous air quality, the two worst levels in the air quality index, than we've ever seen before in the history of state of the air. And again, this is year 23. Overall, we found that over 137 million people live with unhealthy levels of air pollution. And then again this year, we're highlighting the fact that the burden of living with polluted air is not equally shared. People of color are significantly more likely to be exposed to unhealthy levels of particle pollution and ozone. That's not good news. Now, it was part of the message from the American Lung Association's State of the Air Report in a briefing with other like-minded organizations. Basically, the State of the Air Report is a mythology for collecting data and all kinds of analysis. And it is really pretty much a report card. A, I may ask for overall air quality here in the Atlanta area. Well, how does a grade of F grab you? Well, let's take a deeper dive into all of this. Joining me now is Ashley Lylery. She's the American Lung Association's Senior Director of Advocacy for Georgia. Welcome. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. I'm sorry to be the one to deliver such bad news to our fellow Atlantans about our air quality. But first, let's begin with a little background information on the report. Uh, what are you all assessing here? What should folks know what you all are looking at? Yes, yeah, so the American Lung Association every year releases an annual report that looks at air quality across the nation. Um, we work to try to sort of um, translate uh, very detailed information from the EPA into, as you've discussed, a report card. Um, and this tracks uh, air quality in sort of two main categories. Um, we look at ozone, um, which is also known as smog. Mm -hmm. And then we also look at particle pollution in two categories, sort of year-round particle pollution, which is the sort of air quality that you're breathing on a day in and day out basis, and then um, the short-term particle pollution, which are really those spikes that you might see um, in air pollution. And so take our listeners through the methodology for this and how the data is collected. Yeah, so the 2022 report um, uses quality-assured data from the EPA that's publicly available. Um, this report, unfortunately, only covers a three-year uh, period of 2018, 2019, and 2020. Mm -hmm. um, this is based off of using quality-assured data. Um, and so this is data taken from local county monitors across the state. Um, so in the Atlanta metro area, um, if you're looking at sort of a 41 county area, only 15 counties actually have um, 
monitors in that area. So we can only really measure data where there are uh, monitors available. So that's important to note because I'm, I'm curious, you look at a state like Georgia, then you look at a state like Texas, Texas, which is huge, obviously, in California. So I'm, I'm imagining they have probably more monitors. I would, I would have to look at the data specifically on that, um, but certainly it has to do with um, not only the requirements by e- EPA and federal investment in dollars for uh, air quality monitoring, but also the investment at the state level. Um, and so I know certainly one thing that can be done, just looking at a, a lack of data in Georgia, mm-hmm. um, is really having a conversation with the Georgia Department of Natural Resources and the Environmental Protection Division to enhance uh, the availability of, of of monitors in the area um, so that we are tracking data because there are many counties um, across the state that don't have uh, air quality monitors and so we don't know what we don't know and we'll get we'll take a deeper dive into that in just a moment i'm also curious so then you all have a team of analysts that comb through all this information that's correct. We have a, te- uh, a team um, at the federal level that really looks to gather as data um, from the EPA over a three-year period um, and then uses um, some weighted averages and other design values to, to make it really easily and accessible for the general public to sort of begin to understand what's happening in their local community related to air quality. And we should note that the report looks at which communities or specific populations are disproportionately impacted by poor air quality as well. You all gave a pretty lengthy assessment here. So you're looking at this not just in terms of we're telling folks about the air quality, but we're also looking at how this impacts specific communities. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think, um, as noted um, earlier, sort of in the kickoff of this of this interview, um, we really, you know, sort of highlighting this year that, you know, certainly the um, burden of air quality is unequal um, and that communities of color are disproportionately exposed to unhealthy air and that, you know, individuals of color are more likely to be living with one or more chronic conditions, which Mm -hmm. obviously make them more vulnerable to um, unhealthy air quality. And that may not, I know for you, and also for me, because I've been covering this, for it's not, it's not new. But again, and I know that you all are giving assessments here, but when you look at the fact that this isn't new and that this is, when we talk about inequalities and equity and inequities and all this, it always tends to be the same populations, actually. So I'm sure that's not lost on you all when you do this report. No. Yeah, no, it's not. Um, But I think, you know, given the climate that we are in, no pun intended, Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's important to continue to raise um, awareness around um, that we continue to have a segment of our population that are um, justly unburdened by by air quality. And we not Mm -hmm. only um, need to put policies in place to improve our air quality, but we also need to put policy in place that people aren't exposed, um, that their communities aren't located in industrial areas where uh, they may be, uh, as I said, earlier unjustly burdened by air, by air quality. So let's get some takeaways from this report overall in terms of nationwide. I, I, this struck me when you all said 15 years ago in the 2007 report, there were 136 counties in 36 states that got failing grades for spikes in particle pollution, including 31 counties in seven states west of the Rocky Mountains. Then in 2022, 96 counties in 15 states got failing grades for short-term particles, and 86 of them were in 11 Western states. So you see some progress, but we also still see some some challenges here. And we know that that big climate, global climate report that came out, I believe, last year, which basically said, you know, look, we have hotter, hotter days, more and more hotter, hotter days, and pretty much that we are just an overheated planet. In a nutshell, is what it said. Correct. Yeah. So, I mean, I think this year in this report, certainly we're seeing, you know, the trend we've been doing this report for 23 years or so, um, you know, that we're still seeing four in 10 Americans sort of living in counties that had unhealthy levels of ozone or particle pollution. And, you know, within that, um, you know, we've had in this three year period of this report, you know, certainly nearly nine million more people who were impacted by deadly particle pollution. And a lot of that is, you know, being exposed to very unhealthy or hazardous air quality. And that can be a attributed to the wildfires, especially in the West. Um, you know, we're fortunate in the Southeast and here in the Atlanta area where we haven't been, um, we haven't been subject to that sort of very hazardous uh, air quality due to wildfires, but it doesn't necessarily negate that um, with the impact of climate change, um, increases in ozone and unhealthy air days in the Atlanta area, that we could um, be experiencing that in the near future. And four out of 10, that's 40% 
of Americans, and you're all saying that's more than 137 million people living in these places where you all consider that the air quality is basically just unhealthy or poor. Let's just, I want to make sure we're clear on that for our listeners. When you say four out of... What does that say to you? I mean, I know we've been talking about this, but... Is, is, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think we still we still have a lot of work to do. I mean, I think generally, you know, specifically, let's talk about the Atlanta metro area. Mm-hmm. So, you know, residents are, are this year's report really showed that residents are exposed to less unhealthy air pollution. Um, we saw improvements in ozone. We saw some improvements in particle pollution year round and short term particle pollution. But that doesn't mean that the air is healthy. Um, you know, for the Atlanta area, for ozone specifically, we saw fewer unhealthy air days but we still saw unhealthy air days. In this three-year period, we saw 10 days where we're you know, on the air quality index of orange and one red uh, day. Um, and so you know, that still leaves Atlanta you know, among the Southeast still having the fourth poorest air quality. Um, and you know, for year-round particle pollution, we saw some you know, decline um, in, in year-round particle pollution, which is good, so that's that daily. Mm-hmm you know, air quality or um, air pollution, excuse me, that you're breathing in and out. And that's good, but we still have a lot to do. And so there's a couple of, I think, different uh, multifaceted approaches at the individual and state and local level that we can talk about. Well, we're going to talk about that. In case you're just joining us, I'm in conversation with Ashley Lyerly. She's the American Lung Association's Senior Director of Advocacy for Georgia. And we're talking about the State of the Air Report. I want to go back um, for a second because I'm, I'm, this might be confusing for listeners. We looked at Fulton County which got an F for the ozone grade. When you just mentioned, though, in terms of the particle pollution, though, it was pretty good. It was an A. So can you, for listeners, they might be a little bit confused, can you sort of take them through how you all calculate the particle pollution? And that's on a daily basis, correct? Right. Well, so we have particle pollution on a 24-hour period, which are really the, the spikes. And so for these sort of three-year period, 2018, 2019, and 2020, you know, we didn't really see any, um, you know, significant spikes in, in air pollution, which certainly can be hazardous, especially those with, with lung disease or any other chronic disease. Those sort of spikes in air quality can be concerning. Um, but we did see, you know, we do have this sort of day in and day out uh, annual particle pollution that you have in the metro area. Um, and, you know, thankfully, um, you know, that air pollution in the metro area is sort of uh, is sort of below um, sort of the EPA limits for, for annual particle pollution. And so the area did receive a pass you know there that grade is specifically is sort of on a pass or fail um mm-hmm. category and then and then the ozone analysis here take our listeners through that how you all how that's calculated yeah, so for ozone, um, it's really looking at what um, is the particle pollution for that three-year period. How many days did did the metro area have in sort of an ozone, sort of orange ozone days, red ozone days, and then purple ozone days. And so if you were to look at the air quality index, that's where you might see, if you're watching the daily news, you might get an alert to say, mm-hmm. hey, if you have a chronic condition or if you have a kid or you're elderly, you know, maybe uh, don't go to the playground that day or or don't take your walk uh, that day or your run, you know, sort of limit your exposure to outdoor air. So we um, look at those number of days and give a weighted average um, to then be able to look at um, a category nationally for, for ranking purposes. Let's get into the fun part of this, I guess, or the good news, which is the recommendations, which I'm sure a lot of listeners are, are wanting to know. Let's start then with, I guess, the state governments yeah. here. You know, yeah, what, yeah. what is your what is report include in terms of recommendations? Yeah, I think really, you know, not only at the state and local level is really beginning to start having conversations or continue ongoing conversations around sort of a climate action plan. And what does that mean? So, you know, making that we're making sure that we're supporting opportunities for walking and biking and sort of the transition to zero emission vehicle infrastructure, because we know that vehicles, um, not only your personal vehicles, but also trucking vehicles, those emissions really do, um, you know, Uh, are attributed to not only particle pollution, but also uh, pollution for for Mm -hmm. ozone. So making sure that we're moving towards, um, you know, those sorts of um, pieces. Also making sure that we're, you know, sort of having goals around renewable and non-combustion electricity, um, because we know that power plants and other sorts of factor factors, excuse me, uh, contribute to to air pollution. So that's sort of broadly, um, you know, with local and state 
um, governments what we what we could be doing. And certainly there are ways that we can be doing things at the individual level as well. Let me ask you, because I know that Atlanta, and we talked about this, Atlanta had a clean energy Atlanta, which was this sort of this vision for a, again, a vision for 100% clean energy future. Do you, are you all looking, are you all able to look at assessments? And maybe you can't do it for every county or every major city, but do you all take that in consideration as well? Not specifically in this report. I mean, certainly I think anecdotally we can look at sort of what's been happening and transitions with with policies and, and infrastructure um, to reduce pollution in a particular community. But we really, this report specifically is based off of data from, from the EPA, um, which hopefully as we implement plans such as the one that you just noted, um, we will see in, in you know further years, we'll see improvements um, in air quality as a result of that. I want to shift for a moment, shift for a moment, and talk about um, those states that consistently tend to get pretty good grades. Can you tell listeners who they are? Do you know? Yeah, I mean, so we have, you know, within this report, and if folks are interested, um, they can visit our um, lung.org um, to look. We rate uh, cities and counties. Um, you know, in sort of what the cleanest cities, and it mm-hmm. really ranges um, mm-hmm. for all pollutants. Unfortunately, we can't really pinpoint a, a lot of times a whole state sure. um, because it's a based off of topography and wind patterns and all of the things that play it into air quality. Now, we should note that Brunswick, Georgia, here was named as among, among the cleanest U.S. cities for ozone air pollution. So, I guess that's good news for for Brunswick, Georgia. We don't know what they're doing down there, but perhaps we need to go down there and find out. Yeah, absolutely. Well, then on the other uh, side of things, if you look at sort of the Augusta, Richmond County area, unfortunately, we're continuing to see worsening trends around um, its air quality and and really uh, that area tied worse for the southeast. And so it's interesting that sort of, you know, looking at the Atlanta metro area with some improvements and then Augusta, you're seeing worsening trends. It really speaks to this sort of um, difference of how do you track track air quality, what's happening in that local community um, with topography and air quality and industry as well. And I know you probably get this question a lot, but for individually what we all can do, and it may be the same familiar suggestions that we give folks, but what are they? What can we all do as individually to help clean up our own air? Yeah, well, I think first and foremost is certainly, you know, making sure that you're protecting yourself and your family, um, especially if you have a chronic condition, if you have a, a young a young child or um, have uh, family members who are elderly, making sure that you're monitoring the daily air pollution forecast in your area so that you know what the air quality is and so that um, you're, you know, when the air is bad, you maybe adjust your exercise plans or other activities to, to be indoors. I think also there are some certain ways um, that you can also help to reduce your own contributions uh, to air pollution. So mm-hmm. if you can prior to prioritize walking or biking or taking public transit, um, you know, in the summertime, we have high heat. If you're not going to be home, maybe turn down your air conditioning to reduce reduce and conserve your electricity. And and if you can, you know, certainly transition to sort of non-combustion sources. But actually, I want to point out something, too, because it had been noted that because of the pan- pandemic, especially in 2020, you know, obviously there were less people out on the roads. I mean, the people had reported that the air quality was a lot better because there were fewer vehicles obviously out because of the pandemic. Were you, were you surprised by any of these findings, given that we were in a pandemic and that the results from your your collection here, your assessment collection, your data collection, that perhaps it would have been a better in terms of, for some states, in terms of the overall grades because of the pandemic. Yeah, it's a good, very good point, and it's something that we've been we've been talking about. I think certainly um, we're not seeing that trend yet. I mean, I think we certainly anticipated that there, we, since we had fewer vehicles on the road, um, that we might see that transition. But you know, on the flip side, we also saw more Amazon Prime trucks uh, and more you know deliveries to individual. Uh, mm-hmm you know, homes and businesses, even, or because people weren't going out themselves, or they may be using um, a ship to delivery driver, not because they're not traveling to the grocery store, but somebody is doing that for them. Mm-hmm. So we still um, had people on the roads, we still had vehicles being used. But as you just noted, I mean, I think, think you know, uh, this report does include 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, most of the shutdown started in early March or mid March. Um, so it doesn't represent a full year um, yet of that data. And mm-hmm. so we'll see, but this report really didn't show any obvious improvement in air quality due to the pandemic. And so then we should expect the next one, the next report, then that might have a 
better snapshot of what we all experienced in terms of the pandemic and how it relates to our state of the air. So you might see some differences there is what you're saying. Maybe. Well, well, we'll hope to see that. We also hope that um, we'll continue to see a transition to zero emission vehicles and the implementation of the Clean Air Act, um, which will continue to help us see improvements in, in air quality nationally, hopefully. And if there is one other takeaway from this that we really didn't hit on, you did a little bit, but you all say, look, nearly nine million more Americans impacted by what you all call deadly particle pollution, nine million more than this last assessment that you all did. Yes, absolutely. And I think a lot of that can be attributed to um, climate change, increases in temperature, rising temperatures, not only obviously in the southeast where we've been experiencing warmer temperatures, especially over the last couple of weeks, um, but also just to the intense sort of wildfire smoke that we um, have had um, in, in the West, unfortunately. Speaking of the West, I'm headed out West in well, I don't want to tell folks where I'm going, but I'm headed out west. <laughs> I'm going to Nevada. How about that? In August. Okay. So uh, <laughs> what should I know? I should probably just <laughs> stay inside is what you're saying. I think it's I think so. I, th- I know it's probably still warm out there, maybe even hotter than it is here in the southeast. <laughs> oh, I looked at the temperatures and you don't even want to know. Ashley Lyerly, she's the American Lung Association Senior Director of Advocacy for Georgia. We'll have links to this report on our website. Good information. Thank you, Ashley, so much for taking the time. Thank you so much, Rose. We appreciate it. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Yes, it's the usual summer break for students right now, but what's still unusual is that we're in this pandemic. Now, two years ago, all the nation's schools had to pivot and figure out how to continue educating students. Meanwhile, from parents to teachers to school board members, politicians, and everyone in between, including late-night talk TV people and public radio hosts, everyone seemed to be at odds and asking questions about whether to mask or not mask, to vaccines, to mandates, the debate continues. Well... In Gwinnett County, which is the Georgia's largest school district and in the top 12 nationwide in terms of population and quite diverse, they had the same issues. And they also introduced a new superintendent who came aboard. What a way to be your first superintendent job in a pandemic. How was his first year? Let's ask Gwinnett County Superintendent Dr. Calvin J. Watts. Superintendent Watts, welcome to the program. Thank you, Rose. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, Thank you for having me. You get the same question that every other superintendent got. There was no playbook on how to deal with a pandemic. You came into this year one. If you had to assess uh, yourself, you know how you do the self-evaluations? Absolutely. On a scale of one to ten, that's probably not very fair. But what have you, uh, what's been, I guess, overall just this first year in terms of the school district still trying to maneuver through educating students and we're still in this pandemic? No, thank you, Rose. And I will say, in in, in all fairness, uh, my wife would probably say uh, I'd get, I should give myself an eight and a half. That that, <laughs> and, and that's my story. I'm sticking to it. I got you. Uh, first and foremost, you mentioned this is uh, my first superintendency in Georgia. This is actually my second superintendency, right. and and I was able to actually uh, begin my my tenure as superintendent in my home state, birth state of Washington. Uh, so that is actually where I began my tenure leading in the midst of a global pandemic. So one could say that I had a bit of practice before <laughs> yeah. I relocated to, to Georgia, uh, but, but there's, there's no denying, no matter where we served, uh, any superintendent, any teacher, any uh, administrator at the local school level, any student, any family member or community member understands exactly what it was like to go through uh, this this pandemic during the last two and a half years. It's not uncommon, obviously, for a superintendent in a leadership role. Obviously, you have a strategic plan. You're working with the board. You're working with the district. But did you were you able to try to implement any of those strategies? Because you again, it's the pandemic, and it's it's dealing like what other school districts have to deal with. You know, retention with educators students. I mean, yes. all the optics surrounding just related to COVID-19 and then the typical strategies that a superintendent wants to try to implement. I mean, you had all that working. How did you decide what to prioritize here and what were those priorities? Thank you for that that question. I think first and foremost, what 
what the pandemic allowed us to, to exemplify as leaders is to never question, can we do this? Is this possible? Uh, this seems really, really hard. And we know teaching and learning is one of the hardest things to do in, in life. And as, as a teacher, I always consider myself a teacher, as superintendent, uh, relocating 3,000 miles away from where I grew up uh, uh, personally, uh, I would say one of the greatest challenges was really recognizing the fact that there were, there were many similarities, uh, the challenges that we faced. How do we manage uh, mask mandate? How do we manage uh, some of our, our challenges where, where families uh, were politicized, the notion of safety? Mm -hmm. and, and the idea that we really want each and every child to be safe, every staff member who walks into our, our facilities. But we had to manage through that. By managing change, uh, it allowed us to answer several questions. Uh, what's most important? It's teaching and learning. But it's also even more important for our students and our staff members to be safe while doing it. And we had mitigation strategies, like other 13,000 school districts that we operated within. Um, we were able to manage fairly successfully in this this year one. But there were also some other external situations that you had to deal with. For example, you know, as well, you've been an educator, you know that often school districts have to provide these what we call wraparound services. Can't tell you, Superintendent Watts, many conversations we've had about school districts, APS, Cobb, all trying to, DeKalb, all trying to come up with ways to make sure, one, the kids had the devices they needed. You're also talking about kids who households have a connection issue. There's that gap. And just in, in general, too, households where you might have had a parent, generational population living there, everything involved. And even with, with providing lunches and meals, you have all that work. And in Gwinnett County, is, no, is, is not you know unique to this as well. So you have to deal with all of that. And you have a large, non, you have a large, Black and African American, you have a large non-white population, you have a fairly large population of students who are at or below the poverty line. You got a lot there. There is a lot and, and a lot to unpack. And, and that's exactly what, what we did. We led, first of all, with, with empathy in mind. And I think that's part of the conversation I'd like to, to talk about even further. Uh, we knew we had to have a plan in place. Uh, I began first and foremost by just reminding myself a, that, that I too can go home again. Uh, I grew up professionally in Gwinnett County Public Schools, served for 13 years here previously, but not, not as a superintendent, obviously. When I arrived, uh, I made the, the concerted effort with our team to create a strategic planning process mm -hmm. that would allow us to first lead with empathy, uh, that, that would then follow up with uh, ensuring that equitable allocation of resources would support, then effectiveness, and ultimately excellence, that notable standard to which we all should aspire, whether it's academically, socially, emotionally, or operationally. And have you been able to assess, were you all able to achieve that I to, some, that to some satisfaction? I will say that we have not yet uh, had enough time, I would say, uh, to determine to what degree and how well we were able to achieve those goals. However, what we do have, Rose, is a plan that includes uh, key performance indicators, a, mm -hmm. a plan that does have metrics to which we will and against which we will will measure our progress going forward. The reality is uh, I technically am still in year one. Yeah, it and won't be. A, look, you got you got about a couple of weeks, don't you? A, a couple of weeks. That's yeah. right. And after year one, we'll begin year two. The goal now is to make sure that the implementation, the strategies that we are putting in place, uh, that they are now uh, able to stick and that we will be able to monitor and measure our performance against those results that show up. Well, Superintendent Watts, can you give me at least two or three of those metrics you will use? Absolutely. Uh, one example, the first E is, is empathy. Uh, it's, it's doing our very best to understand what it's like to walk in someone else's shoes. And so how will we measure that? Someone yeah. uh, you know, often says, well, that, that's just a squishy indicator, Dr. Watts. How do, you, how do you measure that? Well, the reality is we have taken a very concerted effort to engage, to call people in. We've called our students in with the first of a kind superintendent student advisory council, where 52 middle school students and 63 high school students have met from the middle of the year to the end of our year, uh, meeting with me and, and senior level leaders on Saturday mornings mm -hmm. for an hour and a half each. Why? To talk about what is most important, their performance. How do we address their needs? 
our strategic planning process. They provided feedback and gave us very clear, cogent information that shared, hey, this, this is information coming from our most important customers, mm -hmm. our students. And they bought in and they owned the process. Uh, so those are, are, are some metrics that we are, are going to be using. One is a, a student uh, survey and survey data that asks the question, as a student, uh, does little Calvin have someone, at least one adult with whom he can rely upon or believes in him as a, as a student? Mm -hmm. And ideally, I, we want all of our students to be able to answer not only yes, but yes, indeed. And, and that metric will be one as an example that will show that we are leading with empathy. We want our students to know that they're cared for, that they're seen, they're heard, they're valued and they're accepted and that they belong in each and every one of our schools. The voice you hear is Gwinnett County Public School Superintendent Dr. Calvin J. Watts, and he's not quite at a year yet, but he's got a few weeks away. That's how I'm in discussion with right now. Superintendent Watts, you mentioned the students. I want to shift and talk about the educators for a moment. Yes. Earlier this year, an educator, Lee Allen, also the Gwinnett County Schools Teacher of the Year, addressed the school board, and he said he was leaving the district. And I want to play a clip. We'll take a listen to a summary of Mr. Allen's frustrations as he stated them to the board. The first issue at hand is student apathy and disrespect for school rules and norms. Returning from con concurrent learning, we have an alarming number of students that simply do not care about learning and refuse to even try. We are also experiencing incredible disrespect and a refusal to follow basic school rules. Next, cell phone use. Teachers cannot possibly compete with the billions of dollars tech companies pour into addicting people to their devices. Phones allow constant communication, often being the spark that fuels fights, drug use, and other inappropriate meetups throughout the day. We need a comprehensive district plan with support behind it in order to combat this epidemic and protect the learning environment. Lastly, there is a huge disconnect between administrators and teachers. The classroom in 2022 is drastically different from just three years ago. Most administrators have not been in a classroom full-time in years or even decades. Many teachers currently do not feel understood, valued, or trusted as professionals from administrators and the decisions that they make. Many decisions seem to be short-term band-aids placed on gaping wounds. Now, there's a lot to unpack there. But first, did you you were aware of, of Mr. Allen and when he addressed the school board? Yeah, I was. I was at that there. board meeting yeah. uh, on the day. That's correct. As he ended with that clip, short-term band-aids on gaping wounds. Did you have you had a chance to speak with him? I have spoken with him uh, previously, and not after that that uh, recent uh, encounter in the, in the board meeting, but I've had conversations with him, yes. Did he talk about these frustrations with you? Uh, he did mention uh, certainly you know, some frustrations that, that he had, uh, and I will say, first and foremost, I respect each and every one of our teachers. Mm -hmm. uh, as I said, I always consider myself a teacher, and, and the, the, the reality is uh, what, what Mr. Allen ha has uh, shared and, and shared in that clip is is very similar to what others uh, like Mr. Allen uh, were feeling, not mm -hmm. just in Gwinnett County Public Schools, but across the country. This is it's it's a hard time mm -hmm. in general to to be a teacher uh, of students in in a an average public school uh, setting. The reality is our students have been away from each other, mm -hmm. have been away from their colleagues and friends for for two and a half years in many cases. And what we know to be true, there is research that shows that, that we are social creatures and that when we are away from one another, we do lose some sense of normalcy, some sense of collegiality. Mm -hmm. And how do we get along with others? Uh, that, that has manifested itself in many ways. We, we do see uh, evidence of that in some of our schools. I'll give you a firm example of what uh, Mr. Allen mentioned, one in a data set that we monitor. Every behavior, I believe, communicates a need. If you were to ask me, Dr. Watts, what are the top three most frequently issued disciplinary offenses in the middle school level, I would tell you, first and foremost, one is uh, absent without leave. That means student is not uh, showing up to, to class on, on time and not uh, giving a reason for, for, for being absent. Mm -hmm. Second is tardy, uh, being in the hallway, uh, uh, being somewhere else other than, than being on time in the classroom. And the third is failure to follow instructions. Each one of those behaviors shows that, that a student uh, has a desire to be somewhere else other than in the classroom. And that's important for us to know. That, that's, how, that's, that's an indicator. So then how do you begin to address that? Be yes. Because you, you want to educate all the kids. Absolutely. Um, and you know, and I know, because I experienced it, there, sometimes educators have to make that decision if it's one or two 
quote, disruptors, remove them. Now, I, I, now, I'm not saying I was removed. I'm just saying I don't want people, oh, that roast guy was I'm kicked out of that. I'm not saying you were. I, I know you were. So, um, and then, then that, those students who are cited as disruptors, then they're not being educated. So it is tough. No one argues yes. that. How Absolutely. do you, be, where do you begin to address that? Yes. And do you need then the community and and counselors and parents you have to bring them all in this too and say, hey, we can't do it alone. We need for every student to want to be here, to want to learn. If there are some other circumstances that's preventing a, a student from learning, we need to address that. There's a lot here. So yes. where do you begin? Yes, you, you begin with the, what you just shared with me and the, and the purpose for this conversation today. We, we begin with asking questions. And those questions are, first of all, what is it that, that it's going to take for, for you to, to feel as though you belong? Uh, to ask, and I... Askly, uh, simply put, ask several of our students who were on our, our student advisory. And these were, were students, some of whom who, who fit some of the categories that I've just described, some of whom would be uh, considered model students and somewhere in between. These were, were average students. And I will tell you, they shared with me, Dr. Watts, our, we want to suggest changes. We want to suggest ways in which we can feel like we belong, uh, whether it, it, it was an issue of having different meals uh, uh, served at lunch, mm -hmm. uh, making sure that they had course offerings that reflected uh, their, their desires and, and needs as a learner. Uh, there were multiple aspects that we learned from our students uh, that we also learned from our teachers. And we should note too, Superintendent Watts, because you came yes. into the district where there were concerns and then there was data that indicated that black students in the district and, and Hispanic students were disproportionately disciplined, suspended within the district. They faced a higher rate of that as opposed to white students. What have you all done to address this? And that, that is an important uh, point that you, you bring up, Rose. And I think this is really the, the conversation that we're having with each and every. And that's the notion of, of not, not referring to all students now because little Calvin can get lost in all. Mm -hmm. When we focus on each and every, that means that, that our, our educators, our counselors, our administrators, me as a superintendent, our district level leaders are now responsible uh, for creating environments where not just our students, but our staff, our families feel welcomed uh, to our school facilities, feel valued, they feel appreciated, they feel seen and heard. Uh, and, and part of that is professional development, mm -hmm. uh, adding uh, counselors and a social emotional learning arm to our support systems within Gwinnett County Public Schools that, that really allow uh, our adults to understand that, that this is hard work, not just hard work, but it's hard work. That when we love this work, it becomes easier. But, they need to, but the educators need to support and the students need to support. Absolutely. And then there's training involved. Absolutely. That, and that's a part of that professional development that I, that I mentioned. That is a, also, we can't do this work alone. We can't do this work without education and professional development. We are a learning organization, and that is part of our goal. We need to make sure that we're learning how to, to teach, even, please, go ahead. No, I'm just curious, so are you saying there will be a different or modified assessment? And I don't know what the assessment that you all use in terms of when it comes to discipline, if it's going to lead to suspension or expulsion. Is there, has that, that's changing? Is there going to be more of a process a longer process involved. Now, obviously, there may be some incidents where, obviously, if it's of a criminal nature, perhaps, but there's always due process involved in that as well. So are you saying that this is changing? You're, 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 the culture is changing and the process is changing in terms of how to make sure students have a fair and what one would may say equitable process is if it's going to lead to disciplinary action that could result in suspensions or someone being expelled. So the, the simple answer to that is, yes, we are uh, working towards changing. And, and the, the inconvenient truth is that, Rose, we cannot improve unless and until we change. Mm -hmm. And so the, the focus for us now is to take a look at discipline, not necessarily as uh, an act that an adult uh, imparts onto another uh, a young person. Mm -hmm. But in fact, uh, our goal is to make sure that we as students and as staff are disciplined, that, that we are we are actually following our own code of conduct and ultimately we're doing some things differently not just punishing for punishing punishing sake sometimes individuals need to be excluded from a, an environment mm -hmm. to to cool down to find their 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 
centered self, but there are also times when, when a student needs to also restore the relationship that has been damaged, whether it's with another student or with an adult. Mm-hmm. And that's our restorative practices uh, strategy and support system through strong professional development, helping our students to understand that, yes, you may be removed from a situation. We really want you to come back into this circle, this this peacemaking circle, and talk about w- what bothered you, what, what could you have done differently, and, and ask the question, how can I restore the relationship that might be damaged between myself and uh, a teacher, like Mr. Mr. Allen met you, mm-hmm. or a counselor, or, or a parent, or, or a caregiver, or a fellow student. These, these are the, the new, I would say, and, and improved strategies uh, that may, may serve us uh, better, certainly allowing us to build community because we're in, in different times now we're, and we're in very challenging times and our community is what we need now more than ever. What is the then the number one non-pandemic related new strategy implementation coming in in this school year and when, when the kids come back? So I think when the, when the kids come back and then when the adults come back, mm-hmm. uh, I will say one thing that, that will remain is that we're going to continue with our mitigation strategies. We're going to make sure that we're uh, you know, top down, inside out. Our buildings will be well maintained, uh, disinfected and supported. Uh, we also want, want to make sure that, that we're taking care of the inside of our students and staff members. So that means the hard work. That means the social emotional work. So that is is new and, 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 and not necessarily new, but newly important. Mm-hmm. And so that means how do we uh, you know, have a, a, a beginning of our school year that that gives students, staff and families this warm feeling of a welcome back and a welcome back to a place where you belong, not where you are a stranger, not where you are not wanted. No, a place where you belong, where you are seen, valued and heard and that where your goal is to be a better, brighter student. Uh, achieving at higher levels at each grade level and upon graduation so that you can be not just prepared, but ready for the career connection, the career connected learning and the career of of your choice. And finally, I'm curious as a former educator who's been in the classroom, you're now in a leadership position. You are a man of color, all those optics. You think about that. You draw from all those experiences in this leadership role now here in Georgia, in Gwinnett County? Every day, Rose. I, I think about, uh, first of all, the fact that, that I grew up in, in, the Was- in Washington State. My parents, I have Southern roots. My dad was born in East Palacca, Florida. My mom was born in Thomasville, Georgia. They did the second migration, met, married. Three years later, I was welcomed to the world. That's how I, I, uh, you know, I was born in Washington State. But I went from one Washington to the other. I'm a Howard University grad. And what I tell people is that- H-U? People ask, well, you know, <laughs> and so, so, so when they ask me, uh, Dr. Watts, when did you first see a teacher who reflected your dimension of, of difference? Mm-hmm. And, and I share this. This is part of my leadership story. I said the first time Now I had my dad uh, and uncles who were incredible role models. But the first teacher, the educator, official educator in a classroom experience that I had who looked like me as an African-American male was was freshman year in college. That was the first time. Wow. Now, now the reality is what I tell people, and we have this conversation in, in Gwinnett County Public Schools uh, today, the notion of the role model effect. It is real. It is real in that. Uh, no, it doesn't mean that because I don't look like you that, that you cannot see uh, me as a, a positive role model. But what it does mean is that when I see images of me, uh, the reflections of my own uh, dimensions of diversity, that when I see those images and positions of power or authority, that uh, I too can see myself in those same roles and responsibilities. As the first African-American superintendent in Gwinnett County Public Schools, I take that very seriously and and have had a a story to tell from a young lady who served as a leader in one of our high schools that I visited. And after I had a conversation with her and and part of my look, listen, learn tour where I visited uh, more than 90 of our schools. I still have about 50 to go, but we're going to continue that that uh, that pace. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was told that uh, that Dr. Watts, the student who shared you shared with, when you left uh, the assembly, and that she was she was glad you joined us. She started crying, and I said, "What what what happened?" I said, "Why did she start crying?" She said, "No, there were there were happy tears, but there were also tears of of joy in that." She said, "I never thought 
that I would see a superintendent who looked like me. And this was a, a sophomore, I believe, or a, a junior uh, at one of our high schools. And so I understand the importance of I take that very seriously and, and certainly know that, that I don't uh, lead in the way just for African-American students. I mm -hmm. lead for each and every one of our students so that they can see images of themselves uh, in, in how I lead and how I, I carry myself. We'll check back in with you all again. Gwinnett County Superintendent Dr. Calvin J. Watts. Always nice to talk to a Howard Bison. Hate you. You know. I didn't go there. I just like saying it. Well, you know, you, you can be a Bison. <laughs> Superintendent Watts, yeah. thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for answering the questions. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. You take care. Stay in touch. All right. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are Janine Etter, LaShawn Hudson, and Daniel Razel. Lennox Johnson is our Closer Look summer intern. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. Reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other, so send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And y'all stop asking where I'm going on vacation. Y'all are so nosy. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And, of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as on our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. <laughs> y'all are so nosy, but I love y'all. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.